Hey everybody, welcome back to Prosecco Theory. I'm Megan. I'm Michelle. We are recording this on October 11th, which is not when you're hearing it, um, but October 11th is National Coming Out Day here in the U.S. Yay! Applause. And joining us today is our good friend Cherish, who has gone through some major life changes over the last year and has agreed to share her story with us and with all of you. Say hello, Cherish. Hello, everybody. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Of course. Thank you for being here. The issues surrounding sexuality and the challenges faced by those who don't identify as the, quote, default are incredibly important to both Michelle and I. Yes. Unfortunately, negative and dismissive attitudes about the validity of people's sexual orientations are still pervasive both nationally and around the world. At best, refusal to acknowledge these differences is willful ignorance that perpetuates an otherness, and at worst, it's outright hatred, but both contribute to devastating outcomes. Yes, according to a June 2020 study published by the Public Library of Science, sexual identity is a significant risk factor for triggering symptoms of depression, as well as for suicide attempts in lesbian, gay, and bisexual population compared to the heterosexual population homosexual and bisexual participants reported suicidal attempts 27 and six times more often than did heterosexual respondents, respectively. The more that we can all empathize with other people's situations and hardships, the more accepting and inclusive our world will be. Empathy begins with being able to put yourself in someone else's shoes. If their experience is far outside your own, that becomes more difficult to do. But it is very often the groups whose experiences are furthest from the mainstream who need the most empathy and who have the most to lose in his absence. That being said, Cherish, put us in your shoes. Please, (laughs) let the world know. We would like to hear your story starting wherever you want to start. Okay. Thank you, um, Michelle and, and Megan. I, and I I didn't know today was National Coming Out Day, so it's it's appropriate. Because you're new. Yes, yes. <laughs> so I, I really feeling very comfortable and proud to share my story with the listeners. And really my story is about one of a journey of not knowing, um, a journey of feeling internal shame, a, a journey of not being in an environment to know and to discover what my sexual orientation was. And a story of it's okay to change. And and over time, people can change as their lives develop and as they get more comfortable. So I was married and with men most of my life. I was married for 16 years, um, have two children, very beautiful children. But most of my life have been with men. As a young child, though, I can remember feeling, you know, that I wasn't raised in an environment that allowed to have the conversation to just explore what my sexuality or what my sexual orientation um, was. It wasn't like there was a discriminatory um, environment, but it just wasn't one of openness and discussion. Hmm. Um, I do remember feeling different as a child. I do remember feeling like there wasn't something quite right inside, but I also remember thinking that what it is to be a girl in this world is is to like men, to be with men. Um, And so I thought that's the way it should be. I dated boys in high school, um, college, um, young adult, and, you know, really identified as heterosexual uh, for the majority of my life. And it wasn't until I would say three years ago when I felt like just, I had this feeling inside me that if I sat still, that I'd have to face the truth of my life. And so I kept moving. I kept running. I kept running away. But something inside me was screaming to be let go. And I just wasn't sure what it was. And so I I dove into exercise. And that was my way of staying constantly busy. Mm -hmm. 
and I endured three years of up and down um, depression, over-exercising, not taking care of my body, injuries, being in the hospital. And I'd been a healthy person up until my mid-40s and then started all this happening. And I remember I was on a bike ride with a friend and when you're generally on a long bike ride with someone and you start talking, I, I said, I think, I think I might be gay. And, I, and it just came out of my mouth with a, a friend and did you shock yourself a little? Yes, to say I was that? like, <laughs> wait, did I just say that out loud? I, yes, um, I was shocked, but it also felt really relieving too. I think I'd been hiding behind an identity, you know, living the American dream, mm-hmm. the so-called American dream of two kids, a, a golden doodle and a Subaru and a house. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and honestly, I, I look back, I felt like I was at the top of the world, top of society, mm-hmm. the highest level of society. And I think at that moment when I was on that bike ride, there was something freeing about saying that and scary because I was like, what does this mean? What does this mean for my life? What does it mean for me? What does it mean for my family? So I kind of stuffed it. I kind of hid it away, and for three years, I just continued to avoid it. It was right there, like I said. And then, after enduring, you know, you talked about the increased risk of depression and suicide for LGBTQ people. I I felt like there's a stigma in society, and especially for my story of being heterosexual for the vast majority of my life, and then all of a sudden, in my mid-40s, going, whoa. And just to kind of set the stage, I actually had one experience with a woman my entire life, and that was college. I was at a rugby party. (laughs) (laughs) So stereotypical. (laughs) But I was at a party, and I ended up making out with a woman, and that was my first and only experience. Um, And then I kind of just was like, whoa, went on with life. And Did you just kind of chalk it up to experimentation? And Yeah, and I was really curious. I I was attracted to this woman. You know, it was kind of spur of the moment. But I remember feeling very scared, Mm. like... What does that mean? I remember being... Because you're out of your lane, right? I mean, it sounds like you put tremendous pressure on yourself to live that expected life that doesn't have any, like, shame or stigma associated with it. And so it was out of the lane of what you were supposed to do. Absolutely. I mean, I, like I said, I didn't, I didn't grow up in an environment that was open, but I didn't grow up in an environment that was closed. So it was, it was just... Unsaid. Unsaid. Mm. It was an unspoken thing that, you know, girls like boys, boys like girls. You grow up, you go to college, you get married, you have children. Mm-hmm. You get that model. golden doodle. You get the golden <laughs> doodle yeah. and the white picket fence and two and a half kids and, <laughs> and the career. So I, I have had this deep fear of what is this truth for me? And I think I've run away from it. And then last summer, last July, I decided enough. And I, I kind of knew in my heart what the truth was and the truth was that I was not heterosexual that I was gay I was a lesbian and I found a therapist I found a queer therapist to work with I specifically sought her out I wanted someone that could understand Mm -hmm. what I was going through saw her through the summer and then about a year ago I came out to my husband and the interesting thing about it is I debated whether I should go test the theory go out and you know be with a woman before I told him but my marriage was one of trust and I also just trusted myself and trusted what was inside me and I've learned a lot about trust what's inside you yeah and what was inside me was that this is my truth and so I came out to him it was extremely hard and painful for him and for our family but what was important to me is we told our children We were open. We told the teachers. We -hmm. told our community. We told parents. Because I didn't want it to be a shameful thing. It's not a shameful thing. 
I think what was hard for people to understand is, including my husband, is how could I have changed? Right. You know, and I think that I spent a lot of time after I came out. And, and it's a process. You know, there's internal homophobia. There's external homophobia. And I think mm-hmm. that it's sad in a way that I had to deal with that for something that is who I am. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it sort of seemed to me like you weren't changing. Right. Really, you were just not living your authentic life before. as your authentic self before. And yeah. I have to imagine that is pretty damn hard for somebody who's been your life partner for a long time to hear that being married to you and being with you is not me being my authentic self, because where does that leave that person? I mean, was it really hard to think about how you were going to express that to him? Yes, it was extremely hard. And I think that in a way, there's no there's no roadmap for this. No, definitely not. <laughs> I think the end result, the truest part of this was just to be authentic mm-hmm. with him. And I believe that at the time that we were married and that we formed a partnership together, it was true. It was true love there. And I would imagine that a lot of people go through different journeys. And it's a journey for me of, like you said, it was there all along. It was just, was the environment, was I ready for it? Was the cultivation there? I don't believe that anything that happened in my life prior to coming out was a lie or wasn't true. And that's really hard for my former partner to understand is that it was authentic at the time. Yeah. Well, we, in doing some reading on this subject, found a lot of information that talks about the separation of sexual feeling from romantic feeling. Mm -hmm. So you can feel romantic love for somebody that you're not naturally sexually attracted to. And I mean, I'm not saying anything to speak to what your sex life was or anything like that. But I do believe that even after you determined that your sexual orientation was different than you'd allowed yourself to believe, that doesn't change the fact that you had a romantic love for your spouse and the father of your children. And, you know, a lot of people say that when they get divorced from somebody they've been married to for a long time that they will always love that person in a way. It's sort of like how when somebody is transgender, you know, what gender they identify with is separate from what gender they're sexually attracted to. Yep. That was something that I had to read about to understand like years ago as well. Just because somebody they identify as a different gender than what they were born with, that has nothing to do with the gender that they're sexually attracted to. And so they could be female that transitions to male but is still attracted to males like they would be if they were a heterosexual female. So they're not mutually exclusive. And and romantic love can be two different things too. Yeah, and I think that that's true. I think it's hard for the the person on the other side Mm -hmm. to understand this. But I, I mean, I feel so free and joy, and everyone deserves to feel free and joy. And in a way, it's sad that whatever environment I was raised in, whatever I felt not free to express my sexual orientation, not free to be who I am. And I'll tell you, after living that way for 45 years and to to be coming out last year, and it, it still was a process. Today, it's a year later. The incredible joy of being able to be true to who I am is amazing. 
it's been a journey and it's a story that, one, I believe that people can change if they want, right? And two, that sometimes these things are embedded in us and we don't discover them until the time is right. I don't regret, I mean, I have two wonderful children. I have a great former partner. I don't regret my journey. I think sometimes I have sadness when I think about the frustration, the depression, the confusing sexual experiences with men. I internalize that as I'm bad, I should be enjoying this, what's wrong with me? I internalize that. And I can imagine that a lot of uh, LGBTQ people internalize a lot of that as negativity. Mm -hmm. For me, I've learned that it's not negative. Our society has come a long way for sure. Like our, our kids are being raised in a very open mm-hmm. environment. Yeah. Especially in this geographic area yes. we live in. It's not the same everywhere. We're but. fortunate that way. Yeah. yeah. You know, to touch a little bit about the statistic that you guys called out that whether it's society that creates an environment for gay people to feel less than, which leads to depression and suicide attempts. I went through a period of time when after I came out, I was feeling really good, but there was still a lot of internal shame. I actually felt like I wasn't loved by God and and I was depressed and suicidal. And I think that I'm lucky that I had a lot of friends and family and support to help me to get the help that I needed. But it's sad that 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 is there because Mm -hmm. it's really just a part of who I am. And I've come to embrace that. And I would say, too, that I was nervous. I mentioned I was nervous about testing the theory before I appended my life. And, yeah. you know, oh, my gosh. And I made the right decision and not, you know, going out on the marriage to test it. But I'm positively sure that I am a lesbian after <laughs> and, and, and can, you know, talk about those experiences if you if you want to hear about them. I, well, we're definitely going to get to that 100%. I just want to say that having watched you go through this journey I'm really fucking proud of you. I know that it's been really hard. I'm going to start crying right now. (laughs) I just, I have so much respect for how difficult it's been and everything that you've had to face and the level of honesty you have with yourself and with everybody at this point. It's fucking beautiful. I agree. The first time I remember you talking to me and Michelle about this a year ago, I mean, you essentially had a panic attack (laughs) because you said the words out loud and then you panicked. And um, just thinking about even you that day and the emotional turmoil that you were going through and how fearful you were of stepping into that authentic self and how it was going to create turmoil in your life. And you knew that. And getting through and weathering that storm to where you are now is pretty incredible. It takes a lot of strength. And I know that it's been really difficult emotionally. I think it's amazing how honest you and your former partner. It's funny to say that because we totally know him. But (laughs) I think it's amazing how um, you both have been so honest with your kids. I think it's amazing Mm -hmm. how he has supported you and the kids through this. I mean, of course, it's not a storybook perfect scenario all the way through. (laughs) But I mean, there are just so many people that go through such a more difficult time. It's really been amazing and eye-opening to watch. So that being said, I do have one more question for you because you've talked about growing up in an environment where it was just unspoken but known that you were supposed to grow up and marry a man and, you know, do all the expected Traditional. things. Yeah. How was it for you when you spoke to your family about this? Were you more nervous than telling friends and how did they react? 
I was nervous and so my dad's not alive. I had a very close relationship with him and wished that he was alive that I could share this with him. My family, I was nervous and scared, but uh, my family's been re really accepting, so I, I feel lucky in that. I have three brothers and my mom, you know, they said they accepted me, they loved me. I have a feeling that my mom and dad knew, you know, and I can't ask my dad now. My mom, I don't know, I just had this weird feeling that, that maybe she knew, but because they were very traditional in raising us, they, you know, they just didn't talk. I, I want to say that they didn't like create an environment one way or another. Right. Whether it was my parents or society, or I grew up in Alaska. It was more <laughs> of a conservative, very state. conservative yes. state. Yeah. yeah. So I, I've tried to think a lot about the past and history of like, were there signs? Could it have been different? And I, I guess in a way, I've kind of stopped because it's too late. You know. Well, you can what if that stuff to death, right? And, yeah. But it doesn't change the journey that you've already gone on. Yeah, instead I focused on my two kids. I focused on making sure that they understand that whether or not they like girls, whether or not they like boys, whether or not they're non-conform, whatever they are, whatever they want to be, I tried to focus on that and in my community and trying to be loving and accepting of, you know, of all people and trying to challenge the terms and the stereotypes that we lay forth for our children. Mm -hmm. Like girls can do this, boys can, you know. Right. I've tried to just make my way and making sure that my children understand that whatever orientation is fine. You know, it's not one way or another. Don't there's, perpetuate that traditional narrative. Yeah, yeah there's yeah. no shame no. around it is basically the message. So my kids are 12 and 9, and they haven't skipped a beat, really, when I told them. They were like, uh, some very interesting, my 9-year-old, would her view is a little, just more of a naive young child view mm -hmm. of like you know can dad turn into a girl you know, those types you're of like things. oh honey it would have been so much easier <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'm like oh that's a whole nother topic the biggest reason why i really wanted to be up front with them when we told them right away the reason why we were separating um and then it was okay mm -hmm. mom wants to be with a woman and feels like she needs to be with a woman they kind of looked at me and we cried together as a family and ultimately they say now it's so interesting is you know i told them that i was coming over here to do the the <laughs> podcast and they were like, what are you going to talk about? And I'm like, well, it's, I'm going to talk about coming out and my sexual orientation. And they were like, oh, that's great. You know, so. <laughs> that's telling. The kids are going to save us all. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Seriously. Okay, so I want to take this back about 70 years real quick <laughs> because this shit is not new. Absolutely not. No. To say I want to take it back 70 years and say it's not new, that's a disservice to the probably millions of people that came before that. The concept of labeling people's sexuality as being homosexual, bisexual, heterosexual is newer, but the experience of identifying as one of those things is not. I mean, this is something that has always taken place as long as humans were around. It was just more hidden and less discussed historically right. because of that shame and stereotypical component we previously discussed. So there are a few people I'll just mention that were either gay or bisexual. Most of the people on this list are bisexual that are famous historical figures that might be surprising. So just for a little perspective, um, we've got Michelangelo, Virginia Woolf, Walt Whitman, Oscar Wilde, Greta Garbo, Malcolm X, Eleanor Roosevelt, and a whole bunch of other people who we have since learned had relationships with both men and women, 
or members of the same sex. Again, it just wasn't advertised. So we're going to go back about 70 years to talk about a really interesting concept and model, but um, this is something where you don't go back a certain number of years. These feelings have existed as long as people have. Exactly. And I I said 70 years specifically because I was talking about Alfred Kinsey and the Kinsey scale. Mm -hmm. Now, some of you may have seen a few years back, there was a movie that came out. I think it was just called Kinsey. I actually have not seen it. I haven't seen it either. But I kind of want to now. Oh, absolutely. I've done some reading about Alfred Kinsey. Um, he is known as the father of the sexual revolution. He published... Get it, Daddy. Get it, Daddy. <laughs> in, uh, in 1948, he published Sexual Behavior in the Human Male. And five years later, in 53, he published Sexual Behavior in the Human Female. And he developed a scale known as the Kinsey scale, used in research to describe a person's sexual orientation based on their reported experiences and feelings at a given time, because it's not always consistent across time. Which now, is a point the Cherish already absolutely. made. Absolutely. This scale ranges from zero, meaning exclusively heterosexual, to six, meaning exclusively homosexual. But it does allow for an additional classification, X, which indicates, quote, no sociosexual contacts or reactions. So, first of all, can we all just try to real quick place ourselves on that scale? Well, well you need to tell us what the scale is Yes. First. So, again, zero is exclusively heterosexual. Three would be equally hetero and homosexual. So the, you know, stereotypical definition of bisexual. And then six would be exclusively homosexual. I would put myself at a one, which is predominantly heterosexual, only incidentally homosexual. Where would you be, Megan? Uh, Let's see. I would put myself at a two, predominantly heterosexual, but more than incidentally homosexual. I would agree with that. (laughs) Those are stories for another podcast. (laughs) All right, Cherish. I'm curious. Now that I'm looking at the scale, I would probably put myself at a five or six at this point in time. Sure. Um, Predominantly homosexual, only incidentally heterosexual, mostly because I was in a heterosexual relationship for so long. But today, I would say I am exclusively homosexual. You're a firm six. Yes. You're you're not interested in dating or having sexual experiences with men. You're firmly... Firmly in the camp with women. Yeah. So I have no desire to be in a sexual relationship with men. So I wouldn't consider myself bisexual. Okay. I think it's really important to note that this scale, Alfred Kinsey created this scale to demonstrate that sexuality is not binary but instead is fluid and can change over time. And something that he wrote was, quote, and he says males here, but I think that was probably from the first publication, which was Sexual Behavior in the Human Male. I think it applies to everybody. Males do not represent two discrete populations, heterosexual and homosexual. The world is not to be divided into sheep and goats. It is a fundamental of taxonomy that nature rarely deals with discrete categories. The living world is a continuum in each and every one of its aspects. That's kind of our motto, right? Right. We always say that on every episode, that everything is a continuum. Everything is a spectrum. Everything from sexuality to gender identity to how drunk you are. It's all (laughs) a spectrum. Absolutely. It was groundbreaking work at the time he was doing it. Because again, it's not like it had never existed before, but people didn't really talk about it. The Kinsey scale is credited as one of the first attempts to acknowledge diversity and fluidity of human sexual behavior. 
and it was the first truly wide-scale public discussion of human sexuality. It challenged traditional heteronormative behaviors and attitudes, and it debunked much of the stigma around homosexuality. I thought it was interesting how he doesn't like the term bisexual unless you're using that term to actually describe somebody who was born with both male and female organs. He doesn't think that you are heterosexual, homosexual, or bisexual. He thinks, you know, there's varying degrees of all of that. So he prefers not to use that word at all, even though it's a word that's still commonly used in society today. So he was thinking of that more as a biological sex, physical sex, right? Um, you know, sex organs type term. There is one criticism that, well, there's several criticisms, I'm sure. But one that I would like to note is that because the scale is a linear model, it doesn't really account for sexual identities that are outside of that continuum from heterosexual to bisexual to homosexual, other than to acknowledge X, which is most closely analogous with asexuality. Okay, so let's say that you are a female who primarily dates men, but you see an actress or even somebody at a bar or something, and you're like, wow, that chick is really hot. Where does that put you on the Kinsey scale? Like, if you're able to see and acknowledge other of your same gender, and you think that they're attractive or sexy, I mean, does that put you somewhere else on the Kinsey scale? Maybe that puts you at a one, like where I am. I don't know. What do you think, Cheris? I don't think it's on this Kinsey scale necessarily because isn't that the definition of someone who's attracted to the person rather than the gender, whether or not they're Mm. female or male? Well, that's interesting. There's some sort of intersection, I think, between the scale and then like some of these external factors like Michelle was just saying. I mean, if your attraction to somebody, like for example, a sapiosexual is somebody that's attracted to intelligence, regardless of gender. And we've talked about this in the past. I definitely see people use this on that term on dating apps to indicate that they're sexually attracted to intelligence. I don't think they pay so much attention to the regardless of gender part. But I suppose you could figure out where you lie just in terms of raw sexual attraction to another human being on the scale and then use one of those terms to identify yourself. Hmm. But I do think that would be hard. Like you said, like if you're pansexual or sapiosexual, then maybe you could be anywhere on the scale depending on the person. I think that the scale is limiting, like I said, because it's linear and there are so many things that fall outside of that particular line. Do you guys know Gilbert, the author Gilbert? Are you talking about Elizabeth Gilbert? Yeah, Elizabeth Gilbert. Eat, pray, love? Yes. Oh. Who was identified as a heterosexual, but she fell in love with a woman. So mm-hmm. I guess as I'm getting you know, new to the game in terms of the culture, the LGBTQ community and culture, what I'm finding is that it's fluid and it's it's flexible. Right. And that I've met people that are non-conforming. Mm-hmm. They don't identify as liking men or women. They, they identify as liking someone's personality, whether or not their genitalia or their sexual attraction. You know, and only that person will know. And I think it's also availability to be fluid. Like, I was in a heterosexual relationship. Today, I, I purely am sexually attracted to women. There's emotional intimacy and physical intimacy. Mm-hmm. Today, I'm attracted to women on that. I don't know if that'll change. I mean, I think that there needs to be flexibility in our society for people to whatever their story is, whatever they, there doesn't need to be labeling. Well, and I think it's incumbent on all of us to trust someone when they say they are some way or aren't some way or whatever they are, whoever they are. Why is it that anyone feels like they 
have to put that person in some box. Like, no, you have to be this way or this way. Otherwise, I don't understand it. Well, uh, it's, you know? it's like, why do you care? Basically, it's kind of like the same message that we've given in prior episodes. Like, if you have a problem with it, it's your responsibility to self-examine yeah. and determine. And even if the answer is, well, I'm uncomfortable because I would never choose that for myself. Nobody's choosing that for yourself. Like somebody else is choosing it for themselves. Are they a good person? Are they a good parent? Are they, you know, a contributing member to society? Like, do you have respect for them as a person? Great. If the answer is yes to all those questions, then why do you fucking care? It's not your life. It's not your bedroom. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I just think it's not fair to critique and criticize when that's just one facet of who they are as a human being. And yes. I think, you know, in talking about pansexuality or sapiosexual or any of those things, you could argue that they're dead center on this Kinsey scale because what they're saying is mm. I can be sexually attracted to any gender because my sexual attraction doesn't lie in the gender. It lies in this other thing. I don't necessarily think that's true because you talk about something like sapiosexuality. I absolutely am attracted to intelligence. I'm also mostly attracted to men. Well, I guess it depends on your definition because, I mean, the definition I read of sapiosexual is attracted to intelligence regardless of gender. I don't think it's necessarily exclusive that way. I think that's why none of this makes sense if it's just linear. That's why it needs to be a, it's probably a fucking sphere of different continuums, right? No, what you're saying makes sense. I am attracted to intelligence, but for me, while I very much value your intelligence and love you very much, I am more attracted to men. Well, could you say that you are emotionally attracted to people that are intelligent, but sexually you're attracted to men? Yes. And again, there's that difference between romantic attraction and sexual attraction. And I'm sure emotional attraction is also a factor in that. I think that the Kinsey scale is just really limiting in that way. Just to kind of relate it to my experience, the kind of what I've gone through, I am sexually attracted to women and have had amazing sexual interactions with women. We'll get to that. Okay. Thanks, Michelle. (laughs) I think it's interesting that we've kind of brought up the idea of gender and the idea of sexuality. And I think that we need to talk about that those are very different things. Yes. And that one does not necessarily indicate the other. There was an article we found, and I believe it's actually from Course Notes. It's a University of South Dakota course through their Office of Diversity, which actually surprised me. Yeah. Right? I'm like, <laughs> That's not the state I would expect no, to come out of. No, I'm proud of you, South Dakota. Pleasantly surprised. Yes. A few things that I found on their course notes said, the spectrum model more accurately represents the ways in which an individual's sex, gender identity, gender expression, and sexual and romantic orientations do not always exist as opposite endpoints. They can exist in any combination, and a person's placement on one spectrum does not necessarily determine their placement on any of the others. The criticism for a single line, you know, like the Kinsey scale, Uh, A single line connecting two points doesn't make space for identities that exist totally or partially outside of those points rather than between them. So a more accurate and liberating model would require more dimensions than a linear scale, the possibility of existing on multiple points for each category, and the ability to depict change over time. You might imagine a sphere that allows room for all expression without weighting any one expression as better or more important than another. 
Does that resonate with you? What you're talking about is that there's a spectrum of sexuality and a spectrum of gender identification. And beyond that, actually. And beyond. Yeah. When we talk about the gender spectrum, mm-hmm. I personally fall, I'm, I was raised with three brothers. I, I identify as a tomboy. I play college basketball. So on the gender spectrum of female male, I think I am more on the... Well, that's your gender expression, expression. though. That's not your gender identity. Ah, well, so my gender identity is female, but my gender expression is more masculine if we want to put a label on it compared to you ladies is more feminine, right? I don't know. I burp a lot. But I think it's a really important distinction. So let's give a couple terms here so people can sort of follow along. Yeah, so cisgender, sometimes people just say cis, is someone who feels comfortable with the gender identity commonly associated with the sex they were assigned at birth. And this word was coined because the prefix trans means across from, and the prefix cis means on the same side. So we use the word cisgender so that transgender is not contrasted with what is, quote, normal. Because what the fuck is normal? (laughs) I know. Seriously. Okay, go on. And then, okay, so transgender is a general term for those who do not identify with the gender associated with the sex they were assigned at birth. Agender is those who do not identify with any gender. And genderqueer is those who feel they are a combination of between or beyond genders. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, Cherish, what you're saying is you still very much identify as a female, but that your gender expression, which can be more of the range of masculine to feminine, which the terms for that are like, you know, butch and femme. And then if you're somewhere in the middle and mixing that, you're more androgynous, right? So you're saying that you identify as a cisgender woman who is homosexual and probably more butch. It's a long name tag. Right? You don't have to like wear that around. (laughs) Yes. So I would say um, a cisgender, which means I identify, I like being a female. I was born a female. That feels right for me. That feels right for me. I'm a homosexual because I'm attracted to other women. But let me just say that I could be offended or I could be appreciative that when I came out, I had several people say that's not a surprise. Part of me was kind of upset, like, wait a second. Just because I was raised as a tomboy, I played college basketball, <laughs> you know, I, I tend to take on, you know, I'm trying to get rid of labels. But to, to if we're going to have labels, I tend to take on more male type characteristics. Throw butch away. Let's just say but, maybe but more not, masculine. I don't consider myself butch sure and i think it's because i think butch has a, a negative connotation to me I, I think it's been used in a derogatory way well, towards i don't consider lesbian. myself butch i can look amazing in makeup and a dress yes and, you can and i can also put on a hat and put on my basketball shorts and be like hey i can kick your ass on a basketball court you know and Get i'm it. athletic and <laughs> i can be more masculine i guess i've struggled with this thought of when I came out and some friends were just like, oh, it's no surprise. I was both kind of like mad, like, what the fuck? Just because I'm athletic <laughs> and I like to wear hats and like to wear athletic clothes. I didn't think about your college basketball at all. Well, I did. No. <laughs> Megan knows. Yeah. <laughs> you play college softball, don't you? <laughs> but I guess, I mean, yeah, I think that there are some labeling that happens and... I think at this point in where, in where I'm at in my life and where I think society should go is maybe to get rid of labels. Mm-hmm. It's funny you say that because I've been sitting here as we're talking about all this and I appreciate that there's all these models, whether they're linear or spheres or octagons or whatever the fuck they are, <laughs> to like help people understand and that's the goal. 
But I also find it a little interesting that we need to go to that extent just to like accept people, right? Like, I need to understand where you fit in this model before I can understand you and accept you. And I just think it's probably a little much because when we were talking about like, okay, Cherish, so you identify as this and this and this and this. I'm like, oh my God, she's just Cherish. And and I think that people lucky enough to be as accepting as we are, are able to see that. And there's so many people out there that just don't understand it. And this is silly, but I kind of liken it to like, I don't understand if someone speaks Russian at me, doesn't mean it doesn't exist, right? The idea that someone doesn't understand what you mean by saying that you're gay or what you mean by saying that you're cisgender. And for a lot of people, that just means I reject it. I reject that as an idea that's possible in the world, right? And so for me, these models, well, yeah, I think it's a a bit much. I do think while the world is learning, they're kind of necessary. I think that that's so much more true for older generations. These kids that are coming up, like you were saying before, they don't fucking think about it. They just are who they are, and it doesn't matter to them. They don't need the labels. They sort of reject the labels, which I think is great. Yeah, I listened to this amazing speaker at an online conference the other day online because uh, we are still in COVID. If, and if you didn't know about that. <laughs> anyway, her name is Carla Harris, and she works for Morgan Stanley, and she's a very accomplished, smart African-American woman who had a lot of really interesting points, and she was talking about, for people of her generation, she's just a little bit older than us, what was important to them versus what is important to like millennials and a younger generation. And something that she said that really resonated with me is that for people her age, and and probably a lot of people our age too, what mattered was, you know, promotions and pay and positive performance reviews and things like that. And she's saying like, what matters to millennials is the name on the jersey that they're wearing. Basically, like, Hmm. they want whatever company they work for to reflect an environment of inclusion and also an understanding that knowledge comes from experience, which comes from people that have a lot of different perspectives and that those perspectives are gained through experience and that the youth, young adults now, understand and appreciate that we live in a world where there are so many different cultures so many different people that are smart and educated and they just don't want to see those companies anymore with like she said like six white men at the top you know everywhere and so it's just part of their culture of that generation to want to see more representation more experience more perspectives more diversity experience yeah more diversity it's sort of like a dull old-fashioned concept to them to go to work for a place that hasn't embraced those values Mm -hmm. so yeah you know i look at our kids like you're saying and the idea that they don't give a shit they just are who they are and i you know i work with a woman who's 24 and is indescribable she's wonderful and you put labels on her and they don't fucking stick because she's just who she is right Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter that's a very new thing for us old folks and even more so the owgs right oh my guys that's right 
there's this generational gap, an experience gap maybe, or it's just, and I do think that there's something to be said for that the world was what it was and there's a lot of things that have changed and so there needs to be some patience and some grace for people to learn and move past those things and luckily some people are willing to do that a lot are not but you can't expect that overnight everyone is just going to understand well i think that people need to be when they're ready to change and when they're ready to see this on this movement they're ready and i think that in my experience like megan you mentioned we're on the west coast we live in a very open environment to where when i came out i was told oh that happens in seattle every five minutes (laughs) But I think that what I've learned through this in my own experience is that you can't change people. They're ready when they're ready to accept people. Mm-hmm. And then in a lot of ways, I think we need to be focused on the small incremental changes in our own communities. Mm-hmm. You know, for me, sharing my story, I, I feel very confident and enthusiastic to be here with you two ladies to share it. Because if in some small way it hits someone out there, yeah. someone else that is struggling with whatever it is, and gives them some courage to just live their life to be free and if that imparts difference in their lives and then they impart it into their kids that's that's how we make change right at the level that we're at Mm -hmm. and the rest of the people will come along hopefully yeah obviously there's still work to do so there was a survey in 2012 completed by the human rights campaign that found that 92 percent of lgbtq teens had heard negative things about being lesbian gay bisexual transgender i'm sorry when was that 2012 so not that long ago and you know they talk about how teens in that community feel this pressure to pretend to feel things that they don't in order Mm. to fit in with their peer group or their family or their community and they feel maybe like they have to deny who they are or hide that part of themselves because they don't want to be rejected or bullied. And so it's a huge amount of pressure and anxiety to keep such a large secret from friends and family because they don't know if they are going to be supported. You know, and this leads into people in general who feel like they need to hide who they are or fear discrimination or or even violence are at a greater risk for emotional problems like anxiety and depression. So some LGBTQ teens without support systems are at a much higher risk for dropping out of school, living on the streets, using alcohol and drugs, trying to harm themselves. I mean, those are some of the repercussions of making our youth feel like shame or you have to be a certain way or you're not going to have a support system. It seems like, Cherish, you kind of experienced some of those feelings growing up, like you had to hide who you were and although I don't know I mean did you even accept or know who you were at that point was it buried so deep well I'm not sure I experienced a great deal of depression anxiety actually had multiple suicide attempts when I was a teenager and I've been reflecting I don't know if it was related I would have to imagine that it is when you've got something deep inside you And when you feel that society is against you, when you feel that you are less than a human, when you feel that you are, that it's not supposed to be, that Mm self-hatred, I can only imagine, for me as a teenager, that was very much present. You know, I'm not sure, though. But all I know is the facts, the facts that I did have multiple suicide attempts as a teenager. I wasn't sure what it was around. I didn't feel comfortable in my own skin. 
Could things have been different for me if there was an environment of inclusion, an environment of asking the questions about your sexual orientation? Those questions weren't asked back then. Well, and imagine the repercussions. Uh, One of the things that we mentioned on a prior episode just in passing, but that I want to talk about a little bit more in detail is conversion therapy, which is often referred to as reparative therapy. And that's the practice aimed at changing an individual's sexual orientation or gender identity. And there's a really good website called thetrevorproject.com that I got some information from. It says conversion therapists use a variety of shaming, emotionally traumatic, or physically painful stimuli to make their victims associate those stimuli with their LGBTQ identity. So we're talking about... God. You know, it can be individual therapy or they even have like conversion camps where adults, guardians, parents will send children to in an effort to try to change their sexual orientation or gender identity. And so they intentionally shame or traumatize them or make them feel physical pain because they want them to associate those feelings with feeling whatever sexual orientation or gender identity that they they think needs to be changed. So it also says conversion therapy is premised on the false notion that being LGBTQ is a mental illness that should be cured despite all major medical associations agreement that LGBTQ identities are a normal variant of human nature. In fact, the American Psychiatric Association determined that homosexuality was not a mental illness in 1973. 1973. Actually, to come out and say that. But that, I'm sorry, that was... Almost 50 years ago. I know. And we're still having this fucking conversation. True. I I, I think it's a little, it is different, but we are still having it. And then the last thing I'll say is conversion therapy amplifies the shame and stigma so many LGBTQ young people already experience. Parents that send their child to a conversion therapy instill feelings of family rejection and disappointment and risk seriously impairing their relationship with their child. So in talking about teens and young adults that already feel isolated and shameful and probably feel that way because the environment that they grow up in, and then their parent or guardian catches wind of this and sends them to one of these conversion therapy camps or individual appointments. I mean, how fucking damaging is that, that something that they fundamentally cannot change, it's being further reiterated to them every time that this is something to be ashamed of, this is something to feel terrible about. I mean, I would be interested to know what the correlation of suicide attempts or depression Mm -hmm. is with children that are sent to these camps or subjected to this kind of therapy. I don't have any numbers, but I can tell you it's huge. You know, in my experience, the conversion therapy is predominantly from religious environments. And it's actually outlawed in a lot of states now. There's like 20 states where it's not even legal to do conversion therapy anymore. I do have a religious background. And when I was in college, I was searching for some greater meaning in my life and became a born-again Christian. I went to a very conservative Christian university where they openly talked about it being a sin, being gay, bisexual, what have you. I sat through many um, sermons listening to people of authority, pastors, what have you, talk about being homosexual as a sin, that God does not love people that are homosexuals. It was, it was an extreme example. For me to be in a university like that as a young adult, 
um, and then coming out and struggling with this later. I think it's extremely damaging. I think that that leads to a lot of depression, a lot of suicidal thoughts. People that identify as LGBTQ are already considered a marginalized group of society, right? It just is. Mm -hmm. And to have this feeling of not being human, not being loved. So to give you an example of my experience that sunk me into a very deep depression when I came out, is I had a lot of internal shame. I actually questioned whether or not God loved me. I went to an inpatient treatment center for depression that had a, a religious undertone. And I was talking to a woman there and, you know, it's the theory of hate the sin, love the sinner. Uh, I was very scared about sharing that part of my story. I did share and she said to me, you know, I don't agree with your decision to be gay, but I I care about you. And what sunk me into this deep, deep depression. And and if you can imagine if, if I don't feel like God loves me, And I do have some faith and a power that's greater than myself. I don't know what I call it today, but no human being should feel unloved, no no matter what. And for me to feel unloved because I simply wanted to be with a woman versus a man is so damaging. And teenagers, young adults, this is happening. This is real. You talked about the Trevor Project, and this is still very much a real thing. And it's very sad. No matter what, we're all humans. We're all human beings. We all breathe. We all have heart. You know, it's just really sad. And I think for my personal experience of feeling that deep, deep shame just because I want to be with a woman was so damaging. It breaks my fucking heart. It breaks my heart. I can't even imagine the pain you were experiencing listening to those sermons without even maybe knowing how painful it was for you because you're just internalizing all that and taking it in and it's toxic you know and so then it just deepens your fear and shame and worry because your faith is important to you and so it's another aspect of your life where you feel like you're making the wrong choice or going to be judged but it's not a choice obviously so I mean you're basically just being told if you believe that you are who you are then you're just inherently bad because you shouldn't be like that. And that's such it's so fucked up. I have a question for you guys since we're talking about youth. Obviously, you know, coming out is a big deal when somebody is ready to be open and announce to their family or friends or, you know, whoever they choose that they are gay or bisexual or, you know, whatever their orientation is. And I'm just curious, when it comes to kids, what do you think is old enough? Like, you know, so kids experiment, right? Especially around puberty, that is statistically shown that as kids are entering puberty and they're really curious about sex, they experiment and fantasize about members of both their sex and the opposite sex. And I'm just curious, like, what do you think is old enough for somebody to definitively say... I know that I'm gay, I know that I'm bisexual, I want to be authentic and live that life. What if, you know, your child who's five tells you that? What if your child who's 10, who's 15, like, does it just not matter? Because like you said, Cherish, things can change over time. I guess my questions are, how do you tell the difference between experimentation and identification as gay, bisexual, whatever, if you talk about it with your child to make sure that what they're feeling is really authentic and not experimental, or you have them talk with the therapist, is that undercutting their feelings? 
I always wonder about that because I have some experience with a family member who is a young adult that is currently going through a transition. His parents have been amazing and supportive. I just wonder, do you have any insight about what's age appropriate? I think to separate the two between going through a conversion where Mm -hmm. you're physically changing your physical appearance versus this is what I am into today. I think there's a difference. My hope for my children is that no matter what age they are or what they're expressing, I just continue to love them and have an open environment and also knowing that they can change. Right. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's experimentation. Maybe it's orientation. Does it matter? It doesn't matter. But when it comes to changing your body with surgery, with hormones, I think that's a different issue because Mm -hmm. those are children mature enough to understand the implications of what they're doing versus not changing their body and just expressing, I'm attracted to boys, I'm attracted to girls. I think I'm a boy. I think I'm a girl. Those are all just curiosity thoughts, which I think every human should go through. But when you start to physically have surgery and change, that's when I personally feel you need to be an adult, like of age, at least 16. So we talk a lot about LGBTQ and not everyone might know exactly what that acronym stands for. And it feels like it's fluid. It is. And changing. And in fact, now I believe the proper acronym is LGBTQIA+. Cherish, is that right? Sounds right. The definition that we have for this is the acronym that often describes individuals who don't identify as exclusively heterosexual or exclusively cisgender. The letters in the LGBTQIA plus acronym stand for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer or questioning, intersex, and asexual. And the plus symbol in LGBTQIA plus refers to the fact that there are many sexual orientations and gender identities that are part of the broader LGBTQIA community, but aren't included as part of the acronym. What does intersex mean? Intersex is a biological sex thing. So you were born with a vagina and a man is born with a penis. And sometimes there are people born somewhere in between. And that is a legit, actual thing that happens. So even biological sex exists on a spectrum. What about, Cherish, can you define queer or questioning for us, the Q? Queer or questioning is an umbrella term that describes individuals who aren't exclusively heterosexual. The term queer acknowledges that sexuality is a spectrum as opposed to a collection of independent and mutually exclusive categories. Use of the word queer opens up options beyond lesbian, gay, and bisexual to individuals who don't fit neatly into these categories or prefer a category that isn't dependent on sex and gender. While this term once had negative and derogatory connotations, queer has resurfaced as a common and socially acceptable way for LGBTQIA plus individuals to refer to themselves and their community. Despite its growing use, some people still have negative associations with the word queer and don't like to be referred to in this way. Queer, like all terms describing sexuality, should be used sensitively and respectively. 
Questioning. The process of being curious about or exploring some aspect of sexuality or gender. You know something about that. Yeah. (laughs) Questioning can also be used as an adjective to describe someone who's currently exploring their sexuality or gender. I guess I would say what's been interesting for me, just kind of coming in new to the culture, there's, there's a whole, like as you guys can probably imagine, a whole subculture Mm-hmm. Um, involved here i feel that the what's going on in today's world of segregating and labeling and all that kind of stuff i have felt that a little bit in the lgbtqi community and i don't know if you've heard of um i'm gonna mess up the term golden showers Shower? <laughs> <laughs> no oh sorry that's, uh, that's the only gold golden. star gold, oh. gold star what does that mean? Gold star lesbian is <laughs> gold star lesbian is one who has never had an interaction with the penis. Oh, so and what so, are you like well, bronze? I'm not, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I think what's been interesting for me in coming out and determining am I queer or am I lesbian? Um, the terminology used to be like gay lesbian butch like all the kind of the old school ways of lesbian women were butch women you know and i think there's a lot of stereotypes now you see that what about lipstick lesbian lipstick femme lesbian yes mm-hmm. i mean i i think coming in, into this subculture you know in my mid-40s it's been shocking i think because i'm like whoa whoa <laughs> i thought i was coming into an environment with less labeling right less ah. discrimination mm-hmm. and what i'm finding is it's not the case. And so I think that my message or passion today would be while the labeling. Right. You know? It's kind of like what I was saying earlier. It's like there's so many labels that you have to pick. Like, well, I'm this and I'm this and I'm this and I'm this. And it's like everyone needs all those labels to understand you, I guess, respect you, which is important and respect your beliefs and orientation. But it's just like people always need someone to fit into a category, right? I'm probably not the best person to ask this. But for example, when I started getting on dating apps and started putting myself out there, and I I really wanted to date women, and I, I had lots of challenges. This was before coronavirus. And so it's like being lesbian and being out there in the world, it's kind of like, where's everyone's gaydar? You know, I can't tell who's a lesbian. I'm ready for my gay sex. Okay. I don't know if you're, you know, it's so different than when you're in the heterosexual world and you just assume that men are after women. That's a good point. Yeah. One of the things that that I discovered is take, for instance, bisexual and pansexual. Mm. So I was on these dating apps and I was like, this person identifies as bisexual. This person identifies as pansexual. I was utterly confused. So Google was my friend for a few months while I was on these dating apps. And near as I can tell, the difference between those two is because, you know, bisexual is you're into men or women. Mm-hmm. Pansexual is the broader definition. You're into men, women, nonconforming, trans. All know, the things. All of things. Yeah. But I think for someone coming into it, I was like, well, I don't understand why you need a label for that. And isn't pansexual like you can be sexually attracted to anyone in any of those categories, yeah. but your attraction is mainly rooted in like the personality of I the person. I didn't understand how that's different than bisexual, honestly. I think the bisexuality exists more on that Kinsey scale, that linear spectrum, right? And pansexuality is taking into account that that doesn't encompass everything. Um, I, I've been telling Megan for so long to watch Shit's Creek. Have you watched Shit's Creek? No. Oh my God, Cherish. Please. I'm starting on the L. Well, that's yeah. perhaps more your speed at the moment. But <laughs> but Shit's Creek is amazing. There's a key thing that I love that one of the main characters says. He's being questioned by a friend about his sexual orientation, and they've hooked up, and she's like, "So I thought." You were into red wine, but I like white wine. I'm probably getting this all backwards, but 
you also like white wine, but you also like red wine. And he straight up says, I like the wine, not the label. Mm. And I love that so much. Yeah, it's it's fucking great because the label only matters if you need to categorize, right? And some people need that to understand and to accept, to hopefully accept, right? But if you are open to any possibility, then you don't need those labels. Yeah, I agree. Since I've been on the dating scene and been on the dating apps and seen all the various different identifications, gender identifications, mm-hmm. sex orientations, I've had to Google <laughs> demisexual, pans, like lots of different words that mean oh, a, lot of different, yeah, a lot of was. different words. I just learned what demisexual was. What is demisexual? On the asexual spectrum, this sexual orientation describes individuals who experience sexual attraction only under specific circumstances such as after building a romantic or emotional relationship with a person. So that's not you. <laughs> that's more you. <laughs> emotional intimacy. Closer to me. Yeah. <laughs> but do you need emotional intimacy to have great sex? No. I am closer to that than she is. But uh, Umbrella, no. What do you think, Cherish? <laughs> I guess I would say if we're going to... Go down that road. Yeah, let's, let's go down that road. Let's yeah, talk let's, about sex. Let's talk about sex. Let's about talk about sex, sex baby. Let's talk about you and the chicks. I think we need another glass of wine here. <laughs> we can do that. I don't even know where to start. The amazing sex, immense joy of having sex, for me, with the right gender, has been tremendous. And it, it really has helped me feel um, alive, solidified, It's a journey. It's a journey from feeling guilty about it because of the situation that I was in, but also feeling so alive and so authentic and so scared because female sex is vastly different, as you can imagine. Did you go through that full range of emotions the first time you had sex with a woman? You know what was interesting to me is I think I had a lot of fears, like, would I be good at it? Mm. Is this going to come natural to me? I would have the same fears. (laughs) Yes. Would I be good at it? Would I be into it? Would I be cautious? The first time I had female sex, it was, like, natural. In fact, the person that I was with was, like, she was, like, sure, sure. I was, like, yeah. (laughs) Like, Jesus, finally, it's about time. Let's go. (laughs) But, yeah, I think it came natural, and I think that there was a lot of interesting, you know, to to really get into the details, I had a lot of fears about what was it like to have oil sex with a woman. Do I like big breasts, small breasts? You know, am I in? What am I into? Well, and real quick, you had a lot of ideas about what you were into before you had any of these experiences. I had a preconceived notion right. about what I would be into. Yeah. Um, as I'm, you know, more than a year into this, I am really finding that I'm, I'm really open to exploring. Good. And that's the exciting part of it. And my fears about would I be good at female sex have really diminished. And would I be okay going down on a woman has diminished? Like, it's mm-hmm. amazing, you know? It's like, I'm a natural. She's smiling like, so big. you describe? <laughs> women are really good, yeah. Well, <laughs> as a woman, you probably really know more. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's been extremely fun, and I think someone coming new into the community, I, I read a lot of articles, a lot of articles about scissoring, fisting, strap-ons. <laughs> Okay. One at a time. Please. A lot of people think scissoring is not a real thing. I is keep, it? I keep wondering, like, what is it about scissoring that could possibly be pleasurable? Clit on clit? Yeah. Rubbing your clit on someone else's clit? What? What? I feel like I need more, you, more specific attention to have... my clit than that. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? Like, I don't know. Oh. Well, <laughs> can't help you then. Do you orgasm from just the penis inside you? No. Mm. I do not. <laughs> See? Well, yeah, but but 
Rubbing, <laughs> rubbing your clit on someone else's clit. Like clit on clit. Yes. Okay. All it's right. amazing. I retract my I like clit on clit right. versus the, yeah. girl on girl. Girl on girl. Oh, that's clit on clit. <laughs> um, I think the scissoring also depends on like body types. Sure. It's okay. like 69. The dimensions have to yes. be right. Right. Dimensions, yes. body types, hips, how you're, you know, all of that. I've learned. <laughs> Jeremy's just getting animated. Tell us what yes. you've learned. Now fisting. Let's yes. Well, tell everyone what fisting is. Uh, there's a fist up inside you. A whole fist. That could be in whatever hole you would like it to be. I suppose I'd like it to be in zero holes. Cherish has small hands. It might feel good. <laughs> <laughs> not be too invasive. Cherish, have I, you have you fisted? You don't have to answer that. <laughs> you know when. Everything's at stake. I guess I feel that there's, you know, what I've noticed about, I mean, some very real, honest, truthful conversations about female and female sex and female and male sex that I would, one is I think that, I mean, male sex is about the size of the, you know, what's the size of the penis, right? And it's, it seems yeah. like, you know, but there's, there's some stuff there, right? I mean, it's like, I look. <laughs> it's more important to Megan than it is to me. <laughs> Making me sound like such a bad person. No, I, there's nothing wrong with that. Female sex, it doesn't matter. Oh, what <laughs> is important then? What does matter? Skill level? Connection. Yeah. Feeling bodies together. Lack of machismo of like, oh, I gotta like fuck you hard. You know, it's like, <laughs> thank you for the sound effect. <laughs> I can't even describe it. It's like this, you know, when you're with a male, it, it's like there's this culture of, of men having someone's to, in charge someone needs to please someone's in charge female what i've noticed is one it's not i mean certainly having an orgasm is awesome but it's there's not as much tied into your what your worth mm. you know men men are always like did you have an orgasm were you pleased we you, you know yeah. women it's it's really more about i mean i definitely have had conversations with like did you have an orgasm you know but i don't feel like like, oh, I didn't... Did know. you enjoy the experience? Yeah. And you can have multiple orgasms with females, and there's not that waiting period, and you could have sex for Wait, hours. What do you well, mean? Like, until they well, can men, get men, it up again? Yeah, you have to wait, you know? Uh-huh. <laughs> they can do other things while they're waiting she's to get all, it up She's, again. like, ra- lifting her hand in a raising <laughs> motion. <laughs> I wish we had cameras for this podcast. <laughs> By no means am I an expert yet. I mean, ask me in a year. and We will. But, um, we'll have you back once a year. Gonna, yeah, we might in. ask you on the podcast in a year. Personally, we're going to ask you like every month. So that's oh, true. Yeah. Two things. Number one, personally, I, I do like it when the guy's in charge a bit. Um, secondly, can we move to strap-ons? Because what did you feel about that experience? And was there a someone's in charge kind of feeling? Yes, and I think that I I was scared of trying a strap on, but I also was really um, energized and really curious about it. And I mean, fuck, I'm curious about it. It was amazing. <laughs> I recommend it for everyone. If you're a lesbian, so you don't need the dick, you'd rather have a chick. Why do you want a strap on? It's a good. fake dick. Doesn't it just feels good though, right? I was kind of wondering that too. It's like, is this a disservice? And actually, there are some. I think what I've learned that there are some lesbians that are not into strap-ons. Like there's all there's like I said, there's a whole other subculture. They're pure. They're so a hard the six elements. on the Kinsey scale. They're not tainted because of the penis element, right? You know, like I look at it as what feels what feels good. Right. It feels good to have well, something. I mean, you still I mean, like fingers up there, like, right? So yes, and a strap-on dick is bigger than fingers. True story. <laughs> I, I mean, sure I hope I so. Hope so. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, what's the point? 
So I both received and? with my girlfriend with the strap on, and it was amazing. And I also wore the strap on. You gave. I gave, and it was amazing. So it just like click around your waist, or like. No, it's got a harness. Okay. It's a two-sided strap on, so double the fun. Oh. Mm-hmm. Part of it goes inside you, uh-huh. you know. <laughs> part of it goes inside her. Excellent. So why not? You get pleasure. Sorry, I'm just picturing. I- yes. <laughs> I think that there, honestly, there's something to that feeling of thrusting and giving it to someone. Mm-hmm. Did you feel like a power in that moment? Did you feel in charge of the situation? Did you feel like there was a more masculine energy to what you were doing? Well, I don't want to call it more masculine okay. energy, but I felt an energy. Okay. Yes, an energy of pleasing someone. Um, mm. Whether or not you want to call it power, that just thrusting, like, yeah, there was something there. Being the alpha? Yes. Wait, I would like to henceforth make masculine energy synonymous with pleasing someone. Can we just go ahead and do that, please? (laughs) How is that different from big dick energy? Uh, see, I think big dick energy means they have like a chip on their shoulder. No, I don't want that. Okay. I want their energy to be about pleasing me. Can we make that happen? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Let me just say for me, it felt so right Mm -hmm. and it felt so amazing. And and for someone who has struggled with feeling that way sexually my entire life, it just felt so right. And for me, it didn't mean that I wanted a penis. Like Mm -hmm. I very much love being a woman, identify as a woman, but there is something natural there for me. Could it be that you're just like a type A personality that it's just like, hey, I love to be in charge and I feel in charge and sexualized right now. And that combination is fucking great. I mean, it was a turn on. Let me tell you that. I mean, it was it was amazing. (laughs) Let me just say it was amazing all around as much fear that I had around it dissipated. So glad to hear that. It's hard to explain to your listeners how joyful and free it is and how sad in some ways to have gone through my entire life. I mean, let me just say this, and we've talked about this, and and I'm sure we we talk to our children about this. Mm -hmm. Good sexual experience is part of being a human being. It's part of humanity. It's healthy. It's healthy. If you repress that in somebody, then you get priests abusing little boys. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, was going to say shame, but yeah. also, I mean, come on, ladies. It's like, we know what that kind of repressed can lead to mm-hmm. sexual mm-hmm. assault, lots of really bad things. Right. We want to empower the girls and boys that we are raising to see sex as healthy, mm-hmm. deserving, no matter how they want to get their sexual pleasure, no matter mm-hmm. how. Yeah. And I think that I grew up with a very black and white view of, and, and to just feel that immense joy in the moment, it just, I cried afterwards. It was just oh, amazing. I love that. And freeing. You know, I'm 46. To wait that long in my life, it's sad. I want, if I can, you know, help another listener, help our children, just feel that it's part of the human experience. It's like what we've said in prior episodes that as a culture have traditionally talked with our children about sex in a fearful negative Mm -hmm. way it's been you're gonna get an std you're gonna get hiv you're gonna get pregnant you're gonna get somebody pregnant it's gonna ruin your life you know it's all like negative 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 fear 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 instead of talking about being responsible and avoiding those things but also like the joy and healthy experience that comes from it 
which is really how you should talk to your kids so that they can have a healthy sex life without like shame or fear or a lot of the things that come out of just having negative bad conversations and correlating it with bad scary stuff yeah people deserve to have good sexual energy in their lives mm-hmm. you know the the whole experience has, has been amazing and it's also feeling authentic and the fear that I had prior to that and I do believe that the body keeps a score on trauma mm-hmm. and denying yourself. And if someone out there has some feeling in their heart that they just don't want to reveal the truth to themselves because they're scared. I mean, you know, it's it, it's all about the, the saying the truth will set you free. Mm-hmm. It's fucking hard. I went through a fucking nightmare every year. Yeah. And I can remember being over here with you two ladies mm-hmm. and just the love and support that I felt from you and being scared and not knowing to today and just being like, hell yeah. You're a different person. <laughs> yeah, this is amazing. And I just, I think that there's a lot of good things that have come out of going through hard things. And yeah. you you ladies know it too, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Different hard things, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> different hard things. <laughs> Straighter, longer hard things? Stiffer? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Cherish... Thank you so fucking much for being willing to do this and for talking with us and sharing your story with everybody. We love you so much and are so proud of you um, and can't wait to hear about all the strap-ons in the future. (laughs) And thank you for being honest and authentic and, you know, just being willing to put yourself out there. That's a really hard, scary thing to do. And the fact that you're willing to do it just is a demonstration of how far you've come and... I really do think or at least hope that somebody listening to this will find some courage or commonality in your story and it will make a Mm -hmm. difference for them. And uh, so we appreciate you and we love you. We love you. Thank you. And I think if there's any of your listeners that want to reach out, I am an open book and, you know, we can connect you. It's your time to shine. It's my time to shine. Guys, if you would like to talk to us or talk to Cherish, you can reach out at ProseccoTheory.com. We have an email, cheers at ProseccoTheory.com, and you can find us on all the socials at ProseccoTheory. Please get in touch if you have questions, if you have stories. Well, let's just raise a glass one more time and say thank you, Cherish. We love you. Cheers. Cheers. Prosecco Theory out.